You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 143 of A Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers and research of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and today we are trying a new format for the show. It's just me today. No guests, just Carlton. David's not here. I think he's setting sail on Sea of Thieves and Connor is uh, doing Connor things in Wyoming somewhere. And I was really inspired by the Pseudo-Archaeology podcast hosted by uh, Dr. Andrew Kinkella. I like his format where he just kind of sits there and talks to the audience for like 30 minutes. We're going to try to talk to you. I'm, I'm going to try to talk to you guys for an hour and see if this is something that you guys, our listeners, guys, gals, Apache Attack Helicopters, enjoy. So I really, I wanted to talk to you, everybody, about, about three things here. And this is what we're going to cover. We're going to talk about peopling of the Americas. Then we're going to hit up the pre-Clovis versus Clovis debate. Then we're going to round this out with with some overkill hypothesis. Like what happened to the Pleistocene megafauna? So those are going to be our three topics today. Because we, you all listened to Connor and David the other day. Anytime I'm not on the show, you know, they talk about things that they know get me wound up. And then we got some feedback because people were confused. So I'm, I'm just going to present what I think about people in the Americas, pre-Clovis versus Clovis, and overkill hypothesis, uh, megafauna extinctions, right? So this is coming from a couple things, right? I have the same paleo-Indian master's background that David and Connor have. Like, we went to, took the same classes, we went to the same department, I still do paleo-Indian archaeology, I'm working on a Jones-Miller, which is a Hellgap-aged bison butchering site out in Colorado, there's at least 200 bison antiquis. So I still have that going on, helping some folks up at Wyoming with the Colby mammoth kill. And so like, I'm still very much uh, engaged in paleo-Indian archaeology, even though I haven't. It's not my main focus. It just keeps bringing me back. And then additionally, like, I've worked at the same sites Connor and David have. Like, I haven't done Laprell, but I've done um, Rock Shelter, and I worked at Hellgap for two summers, and one of which is a crew chief. Like, I'm, pretty, I'm very familiar with paleo-Indian archaeology, and that was like what I was hired to do at Denver Museum of Nature and Science. So even though I like, focus on plains, towns, and the transition from the Mesolithic to the Neolithic, I still have that, that deep background and appreciation for paleo-Indian archaeology. And the reason why I kind of stay away from it is for some of these topics that we're going to hit into, like some of the more pervasive themes that are just kind of still withheld within the field. So like, I want to, let's talk about people in America's first. Okay. This really all stems from questions of antiquity of the earth, right? So we were talking about theory in these past couple episodes and really during the age of enlightenment in the 19th century, you know, like we said, we've had the principles of geology by Charles Lyell. That's in, that's from like 1830 to 1833 in which he demonstrates the principles of uniformitarian stratigraphy. And this determines the age of fossil remains by the stratum they occupy below the earth, meaning like the stratum being the, the geologic layers, right? So the youngest fossils are above the oldest fossils in the dirt, right? We all know this. You think of a three-layered cake, you have dinosaurs at the bottom. In the middle, you have Pleistocene megafauna. At the top, you have like plastics and humans, right? Like, I mean, that's just a very quick example. Then we also have Origin of Species by Charles Darwin, 1859. And this is the theory of natural selection, right? Like this isn't the theory of evolution. This is a component of evolution. It is the theory of natural selection. You know, Charles Darwin doesn't mention the word evolution at all in the early editions of theory of natural selection. So he didn't coin the term. But around this same time, we have some Fossil discoveries in the Somme Valley in Menchicourt, Menacor, France. I, I don't speak French. I'm sorry. I have no idea what to tell you guys here. So, you know, the, the Jacques, you know, uh, this is done by Jacques Boucher de Perth. I butchering the hell out of that name. But, you know, we can either consider him an antiquarian or, or an amateur archaeologist, right? Like at this point in time, it's like, which term do you want to go with? I think for this instance, he does good enough work. We can call him an amateur archaeologist. He's French. He's working in the Somme. And uh, he publishes the Antique Celtique. I, I have no idea how to, it's like Antique Celtique et Ante de Villiennes. I have no idea. And... What his book does in 1847, like, forget the French name of the book. He proposes the antiquity of people in Europe as far back as the Ice Age. And this is done from these excavations in the Somme Valley in which they're finding bifaces, flakes, 
and the remains of extinct Pleistocene megafauna found in context with one another, which have butchering marks. So they find this discovery of, once again, Pleistocene megafauna. They're extinct. They're no longer around. And they're also finding stone tools like that are legit. We're not talking Saruta here. We're talking like legit bifaces. These are finished tools. No doubt about it. People made these in context with Pleistocene megafauna. Now, even though this book came out, it wasn't, it wasn't totally validated. It was validated when John Lubbock published his book, Prehistoric Times, which is also what introduced the term Paleolithic into the, into the literature. Okay, So we know at this time, it's kind of becoming accepted. We have the principles of geology, which set up the order, the relative chronology of extinct animals. We have Charles Darwin with natural selection. We have these discoveries in the song. Now, what about in the Americas? And that's, you know, we've, we've talked about it a little bit in the podcast already. You know, I haven't been able to go on my full rant until, until now. You guys are listening to it. And this question of how long people have been in the Americas has been asked since America's um, Euro, Euro, Europeans first arrived in the Western Hemisphere. So originally, right, they're, they're going for the biblical interpretations, especially like in New England with, you know, the... the that was Protestants. And like, we, we all have to remember, you know, let's get this out. Like the, the people that settled New England, right? Those, they're like radical extremists, like the uh, Puritans. They were like kicked out of England to the Netherlands, to Belgium, maybe. Anyways, one of those principalities in between or countries in between France and Germany. And they kicked them out. You know, like these are like radical religious extremists, which might explain some politics today. So when they show up, they are trying the biblical interpretations like they dig it with the Tower of Babel or Sons of Cain, which really comes later, um, like Lost Tribe of Israel. Like they're trying to figure this out. But then the 18th century, right? On the 19th century, really, we have the mound builder debate. And, and a lot of this, like how long have people been in America's wasn't really a thought process or thought exercise for legitimate like scientific knowledge. It was really grounded in trying to figure out and mostly prove that the Native American Indians that colonists were running into were not the original inhabitants. They hadn't been here long enough. They're trying to justify colonialism and genocide, you know, state sanctioned genocide and, and cultural genocide. Like that's that's what they're trying to do here. So we have the mound builder debate. We we know of the mounds, right? We're talking about these large earthen earthworks. You find them in the southeast, New England, Midwest, areas where there were early colonists colonial invaders and they're coming across these structures which are are fundamentally you can do by yourself and a couple bodies and buckets of dirt and they're like ah these are too advanced nah those savages today they couldn't have built those no 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 this is far beyond their intellectual capability to create these and and as we've talked about right thomas jefferson slaves were able to figure this out they under tj's watch they excavated oh what's the word for it you know, they just didn't dig in the mound willy nilly like it was it was thought out excavation, like it was methodological. Methodological, that was the word I was thinking of for. A methodological excavation. And they were able to see um, using, you know, relative chronology, these uh, principles of geology, you know, they, they were able to find like European goods in some of those mounds that were early on. And they're like, OK, this is definitely American Indians. Right. However, so we, we know people have been here longer, but 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 the problem with these mounds, right? Not really the problem. One thing that people aren't finding is a clear-cut association with American Indians and Pleistocene megafauna that we saw with the Psalm, right? So we know they haven't been here as long as the Pleistocene. That that's what people were pushing it. And that's fine. It was fine with these early interpretations. Like, okay, well, we know well, we've been in Europe forever, you know, since the Ice Age, but Indians couldn't have been here in the Ice Age because we can't find it. So, like, they haven't been here that long. So, it's kind of fine that we're just, you know, getting rid of them, right? So, they weren't totally upset by this. And this is all kind of moving into, you know, Manifest Destiny. So, all this is, is going on. However, things changed in the early 20th century with George McJunkin. We talked about on the podcast, former slave turned ranch foreman in New Mexico. He's after a heavy rain. He's riding all around on the ranch, comes to an arroyo and is able because he works with cattle. The guy knows his bones that go to to Bovids, notices that there are some rather large bones protruding out of the arroyo. And he like rides back to town to tell his buddies. But back then, this ranch was huge. It was like a two to three day horse ride to get 
to the site of where George found these fossils, bones. Nobody wanted to go. Okay, but then like George dies in the early 1920s. And his buddies that he talked to, one of them had just bought a, a, an early automobile. And they were like, you know what? Let's go check out that place George was mentioning. And so like what, it, what used to be a two to three day horse ride was like a half a day car ride. So they just drive out there and they find it. Okay. And they're like, they're blown away. They end up getting a hold of the archaeologist from the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Well, back then it was like the Denver History Museum, Natural History Museum, right? Whatever. They go out and that's where we find the like famous, famous, famous Bolsom Point in between two bison and ticklish ribs. This is the smoking gun. We know that people have been here as long as the Ice Age. Okay. Now it's confirmed. No doubt about it. Folsom point in between two ribs, like at the same level. You can find this picture. They even have it at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. It's in the the Hall of Time, whatever the hell is the dinosaurs in it. They have a really bad anthropology part at the very end. But if you get to the end of that Hall of Time exhibit, you can see what we're talking about. I've seen the collections. They're they're absolutely phenomenal. I got to take a gander at, at Folsom when uh, when I worked at DMS. And so now, and, and today, you know, it's a, the discovery is accredited to George. Even though George died, he was the one that found the site. I went to cars earlier. Now we know people have been in the United States or in North and South America, well, at least North America, as long as the 1920s. Yes. George McJunkin. God. And, and like this is February too. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, go George. Go George. I'm trying to think because like I have, I'm actually like looking up some slides. Um, so Folsom at that time was, was believed to be the oldest, right? We know we know today that it's it's not. Can I tell you guys a story? I'm going to tell you guys a story. That's related to Folsom. It was like my my first week at CU Boulder. I was taking a ceramics class with Scott Ortman and uh, Devin Pettigrew has been on the podcast. He was in the class with me, and it's like day one. It's like syllabus day, and we're sitting there. And then like after the end of the syllabus lecture, Scott asks everyone's like, "Oh, do you guys have any questions?" And and this is a ceramics class, mind you, and it's like random undergraduate like stands up and he's like yes we have the opportunity to like research the oldest known projectile point like Folsom points and Scott was like no this is a ceramics class not a Lixis class and the the students like but why why don't we get a study and it was this really weird back and forth and finally I was like you and I I stepped in I was like you know Folsom's not the oldest point right like you've heard of Clovis and the kid was just like what I'm like have you never heard of a Clovis point before like Clovis is older and there's like a whole pre-Clovis Clovis debate like and I mean he was an undergrad but it was like a really funny exchange anyways so we know people have been here longer and then after that fun fact so Folsom we know is at that time in the early 20th century was the oldest and then we actually found the next one that had Clovis points in it and this is this is a fun fact is is actually Dent so there is the Dent mammoth site and it is next to the South Platte River in Southeast Millican, Colorado. It had Clovis points in it. And it was discovered before Blackwater Draw. The issue is, is it wasn't published first. That That's the big one. So it is it is associated with mammoths, which we'll get into later. It's in Dent. So like technically, Clovis should be called Dent. But the folks down at Blackwater Draw in New Mexico, which also found you know the same point typology in association with the kill, they were able to get it published. They got it out first. So that's why it's called Clovis and not Dent. And that's kind of the, uh, you know, that's that's one of the things of, of publisher parish, right? So, yeah, that's a that's a fun fact. The clove, the people in New Mexico got it out quicker. So another amazing discovery uh, could have gone to Denver Museum of Nature and Science Archaeology, but they they sat on that on that goose or sat on that egg, not a goose. You don't sit on geese. You can sit on swans though. But one of these, the commonalities, right, both in Europe and in North America at this time, is in order to find the um, the oldest sites, they're generally looking for Pleistocene megafauna. Okay, like that's, those are the blinders. It's like, we know we can find these archaeological components with these extinct megafauna. And... We're going to get into that more in segment three when we talk about overkill hypothesis and the extinction of the megafauna. But I want you to save that thought because on this next segment of episode 143, I'm going to talk to you guys about the pre-Clovis versus Clovis debate. So uh, stay tuned and we'll be right back to, to hear my thoughts. 
All right, and we're back with episode 143 for another one of uh, for this Carlton conversation we're all having. So, in, in the last step, the last segment we talked about kind of setting the stage for people in the Americas. The, how long have people been in the Western Hemisphere? So now we, I want to get into this debate of really this pre-Clovis versus Clovis. Who is here first, or where did people come from? So kind of tying in the Clovis versus pre-Clovis and people in the Americas, right? And I'm going to wrap this up in the context of some of the four theories for peopling that we see. And this is tied into really, you know, Clovis versus pre-Clovis, right? So we have four prevailing theories. We have the Ice-Free Corridor or the Bering Land Bridge. There's two. We have Salutrian or the Atlantic Migration. Three, we talked about this a bit, the Maritime Route or Kelp Highway Hypothesis or Pacific Culture Route. And then the fourth one, we have the Oceanic Colonization or the Polynesian Route. So we're just going to go through these real quick, one by one. Now, so like the, the most prevailing theory that was held for the longest time of first, right? I'm, we're just discussing who came through which route first, not necessarily if these were possible later on. This is like where the first people to ever come into the Western Hemisphere. You know, which way do they use, right? So one is the ice-free corridor of the Bering Land Bridge. Now, if you've ever seen like a picture of what bridge you look like, you should look it up because it's really not like a land bridge. It's a whole ass like connecting of the continent. Like it, it doubles, if not triples, the land mass in between Alaska and, and Russia. And remember, like Alaska is our biggest state. It is huge. So people wouldn't have known it's a bridge. Like they would have just thought they were crossing into more of Asia, right? Like it is it is massive. So people are coming in from Siberia predominantly because there are glaciers in Asia as well as North America, the Pleistocene ice sheet. The ice sheets do not block Western Alaska or like mid Alaska. They, they follow some of the Aleutian Islands, Southeast Alaska and into Canada. Like that's just kind of where the wall is. So you can go into Alaska and people were there. So some of the earliest occupations we know of are in Alaska, but they're not in the continental North America yet. They're not, they're not on the interior. They're kind of stuck here. And this ice-free corridor, right, this was originally associated with Clovis culture, which is a culture that we've talked about, should have been called Dent. And these cultures early on, we should provide context. Clovis existed, is dated right now from 13,300 13, to 12,850 BP before, before present, which translates to 11,300 to 10,850 BC, right? So we're talking... About 13,000 years ago and, uh, you know, 12,800 years ago. And these cultures that we talk about, Clovis, Folsom, these are all based on projectile point typology, not necessarily like real material culture. There's no pottery at this time. Paleo-Indian and archaic. We, we separate time in archaeology based on these large, these large groups. You have Paleo-Indian period. You have the archaic period, woodland and then, you know, pre, pre-contact and, and stuff like that. And that, that basically like Paleoindian archaic is the equivalent of the Paleolithic. Woodland is the equivalent of the Mesolithic. And everything that comes after woodland is really the Neolithic. And these things change. They happen at different points in times in North and South America, right? Because it's not just like one sudden snap of the fingers and everything switches. You know, there is genetic evidence that does show relationships between some contemporary Beringian populations and indigenous populations, no doubt about it. The issue is, is when did the ice-free corridor between the Laurentide ice sheet in Canada and the Cordillerian ice sheet in like Western Canada and, and Alaska separate in order to allow people to get in through Alaska, basically dumping them into the Rocky Mountains and the Great Plains? Right. So this is where it would have opened them up into is the interior. It wasn't the West Coast. No. It dumps them into essentially Wyoming and they have free reign. We do know the ice-free corridor was indeed open 13,000 years ago. So right at the time Clovis could have come in. The issue, though, is when could have been supported life? The ice-free corridor, even though it could have been opened... It needed time for plants to, one, uh, recolonize, and then also for animals to come in and have enough food to support the herbivores and the carnivores. So even though it was open, 
I mean, we're talking about a stretch of ice in between Alaska and Wyoming. That is a long way with Chevrolet legs to move yourself. So even though it's open, we there still needs time for animals and plants to kind of utilize there. Also, it's a hellhole in that ice-free corridor. There, it is loud. There's constantly ice breaking. It's wet. It's not the not the greatest environment, but we do know it's possible. People are definitely being dumped in there, and the genetic evidence does show, like, okay, there are some Siberian populations, but are they first? Well, we'll get into that. But the second, which we've talked about a bit on this podcast, well, we kind of talked about all this stuff on the podcast before. We're going to, I want to talk about Salutrine real quick. You know, Salutrine was really proposed by Bruce Bat- Bradley and Dennis Stanford. And Dennis Stanford has sadly passed away. And this is the most bonkers theory. And it's it's not legit, but I want to cover it. And they, they propose that people sailed from central France and southern Spain, or northern Spain, sorry, along the glacial maximum in the North Atlantic to eastern North Atlantic, to eastern North America, sorry. And these sites predate the opening of the ice corridor. And they're saying Clovis points look like solution points. They, they don't. Their solution points aren't fluted. They don't look like Clovis. Additionally, like they're, they're basing this off of like really four sites, Kenosha in Michigan. What's above Illinois? It's Michigan, right? Wisconsin. Wow, I'm bad with the Midwest states. Kenosha in Wisconsin, Meadowcroft in Pennsylvania, Cactus Hill in Virginia, and Topper in South Carolina. We've talked about these. Those components are highly, they, they, they don't have projectile point typologies. Their assemblages are really kind of sketchy. It, they're, they're very, they don't, ha, they have like weird broken rocks, but nothing, absolutely, there's no smoking gun to those sites. And I've been to Meadowcroft. It's, it's kind of bonkers. The problem with this theory is one, people have had to sail there without any sort of landmass, without any sort of ability to support themselves on very, you know, rudimentary boats. Additionally, the problems with this, the pre-Clovis sites, you know, Meadowcroft, Topper, Cactus Hill, don't have any projectile points and a very small artifact assemblages. They're highly questionable. And there's no DNA evidence that we have so far to support any sort of mixing between indigenous populations here coming from Europe. Also, Salutrian points don't look like Clovis points, right? Salutrian points aren't fluted. And Salutrian culture predates the Clovis culture with a huge time gap. Like Salutrian is from 21,000 to 17,000 BP, and Clovis is from 13,300 to 1285 BP. So there is a like 3,700 year time gap between those two points. They don't look similar. They're fucking bonkers. And the issue with this is why it needs to be squashed, squashed is like, Nazis, like legit, Nazis love Salutrian because they, they're like, oh, we know archaeologists approved it. Europeans were here first and like indigenous people wiped them out. So us coming back, this all ties back into colonialism and like validifying the genocide of American Indians. It's just crap. You can, I, I don't recommend you do this, but there's like, if you go to the White Pride Worldwide website, like on their homepage, they have a tagline. It's called, it's official. Whites were the first Americans. Second of all, People in Europe during this time in Salutrian weren't weren't white. That's that's later. Much later. Like these people, we all know they're not very intelligent to begin with, but Salutrian didn't happen. So yeah, that's it. You've heard it for here. Probably uh, several times now. Salutrian's bullshit. Don't believe it. It doesn't didn't happen. There's nothing to support it. Third one, maritime route. This is the Kelp Highway or Pacific Coast hypothesis, right? This theory is people migrated from coastal East Asia into the West Coast of the Americas via watercraft along an unglaciated coast, which existed, an unglaciated coast. And basically, they're just following seals and kelp. It is a highly rich, biodiverse marine ecosystem. People could have easily just sailed across it. And they weren't, you know, they didn't have, like, they weren't sailing open ocean. They're just following the coastline. You know, and, and archaeological sites along the West Coast have had robust artifact assemblages that predate the opening of the ice-free corridor and span across the West Coast of North and South America. And recent DNA analysis has shown genetic affiliation between sub-Siberian populations and indigenous groups in the Americas. Right, and the, and the sites here we're talking about, we're talking about the Channel Islands, which are like 13,000 years ago, Paisley Caves 14,000 years ago, and the Triquette Islands roughly 14,000 years ago. We also have Hueco Prieta at 15,000 to 1450 Five, sorry, Quebrada Yaguay at 13,000, Quebrada Tequay in South America at 13,000, and then, you know, Monte Verde 14,500, right? So we have sites that have projectile points and, and robust artifact assemblages that are along the west coast of North and South America. They're earlier than Clovis. So, yeah, 
But there are some dubious things with it, but we'll get into that here in a bit as we round out this segment. Now the fourth one. Now the oceanic colonization, you might not have heard about this one. This is the Polynesian route, people coming in from Polynesian into South America. Now there are, you know, the theory that oceanic voyagers colonized South America. There is very, very, very little genetic evidence to suggest interaction between South American populations and Polynesians. However, this really seems to have occurred around AD 1150 or 850 years ago, well after the initial colonization. So it happened, but like much later in time, they still beat. The Europeans, <laughs> you know, so that's it's kind of like a cool fact. It's like, well, Polynesians were also here. And then also, like, people forget that Inuit and, like, West Coast natives, and especially in Alaska, were interacting with people from Asia all the time. You know, they were on the, like, the ass end of the Silk Road. We have Italian, we have a Venetian beads in Alaskan context. Like, they were trading it with their relatives right across the channel. So, that's a whole different thing. So, Salutrian's bullshit. Oceanic isn't bullshit. It just happened much, much later. So we had the two main ones that we really got going for us, right? Ice-free corridor and maritime. It really, really looks like the first way people got here was maritime. And then people later came in through the ice-free corridor. But number one is maritime. Now, how does this all fit into Clovis and pre-Clovis, right? Well, that's that's the big big deal here is Clovis to me really seems to be associated with ice free corridor. Those, I think those people were definitely Clovis were equipped with Clovis typologies and like Clovis was a really quick culture, right? Like those dates on Clovis, it's only like a couple, you know, like maybe 400, 500 years old. Like it was quick. But the problem with these pre-Clovis sites or some of these maritime sites, it's like they might not have projectile point typologies associated with them. Some are kind of dubious. And this is where we're going to kind of get into with, well, who are the first people that were they equipped with? Well, Clovis is definitely established. And, and the way that I think about this, the Clovis and pre-Clovis debate, to me, it's very much like if we were to use a metaphor, it's kind of like the, the gun debates in, in the Americas, right? So you have two camps, pre-Clovis and Clovis. The Clovis people are, they're kind of like uh, very much like don't, the don't ban guns part of our government. They're all on the same page. No restrictions. They're, they're, everyone's on the same page. Like, no, no background checks, whatever the hell it is, right? Like they're all in the same camp. The pre-Clovis people, even though they're all under this banner of pre-Clovis, they, they all disagree on what, how far back or what constitutes pre-Clovis, right? Similar to like what we see in our, in, in the American political system where you have people that do want to limit firearms, guns, but they all have different ideas of what they need to do. Some want background checks, some want, you know what I mean? So like, even though you have two camps, one camp is way more fractured and divided in what constitutes it. So it's, it's harder for them to get on the same page. Whereas the other side, the Clovis firsters or the Clovis first mafia, they're all like, nope, Clovis is here first. Everything you guys have to say is bullshit. Where the people on the pre-Clovis side are like, well, these this is way too old. This is not legit. My site's legit. That you know, you guys get what I'm saying. Pre the pre-Clovis camp is way more divided, and it's really a bunch of subset camps. And some of these sites, right? They might still be Clovis people carrying Clovis points, but we just haven't found the Clovis points. That's the other thing. Is like how old is really Clovis is still up for up for debate because some of these sites don't. We haven't found a Clovis point. We haven't found a point. We have a, like stone tools, butchering marks, whatever. We do have some good, robust artifact assemblages, but they're missing like a projectile point typology or, uh, or you know, like a finished stone tool product. So it could be Clovis. We don't know. The, the search continues. Monte Verde, you know, word, word out is that on the street from David, there's about to be a, a pretty good piece disproving Monte Verde based on the geology. And and I, I really didn't know this debate either, but apparently the guy that does the excavates Monte Verde, like guards it pretty heavily and doesn't want people looking at it. And that's a huge red flag to me. Paisley Caves is legit. I think that has like human poo in it. And like human poo is pretty good. Like, yeah, people were definitely here, right? The other issue with this coastal route, when the glaciers melted, sea levels rose. So a lot of those early sites that were on the West Coast are underwater makes it a lot, you know, way more difficult to find them. Whereas like Clovis point, like Clovis cultures, like they're in the interior of the United States. Right. Like they're not really affected by rising sea levels where that coastal route hypothesis, like that is super, like those sites are underwater. Like we even know of sites in the Mediterranean 
that are underwater. And those were only a couple thousand years ago, right? So like those sites, unless they're in high elevations that aren't like like Monte Verde in Chile, right? That's that's high up there. Like you gotta you gotta do some climbing to get to it. So finding some of those sites, they they might just be gone. You know, but Clovis is really tied to the ice-free corridor where pre-Clovis is kind of tied into this maritime route. And they and they're different populations, right? Like it's not just one group that came to the Americas. There was multiple migrations. How many people? Who the hell knows? Probably not a lot. And we're gonna we're gonna get into that pretty heavily in this next segment. So and and I very much believe people were here older than you know Clovis. I don't. You've heard us talk. I don't believe in Sruti. The White Sands footprints I'm still out on. The Chiquahita Caves thing we talked about. That's bullshit. I think people have been here older than Clovis. What we assume is like the, the start date of Clovis. Whether that is still Clovis, I don't know. Because we don't know if those other sites were Clovis or had Clovis. And, and it's just anyways, it's just a fucking point, projectile point typology. It's basically we're, we're arguing over the kind of phone people had. I, for me, like this idea of like, what's the first artifact assemblage? I don't give a shit. It's like, how long have people been here for? And even that kind of point is moot. I, it's just a thought exercise for me. It's like, oh, how long were people here? Like, that's about it. Like the way people get so fucking bent out of shape over Clovis or pre-Clovis is fucking childish. Like uh, at the end of the day, they're arguing over rocks. And a lot of these interpretations like are kind of meaningless. Like it's cool. Like I think it's just fun to know like how long people have been here. We know in American Indians have been here for longer than 10,000 years. End of story. How long ago? Like I just want, like, where's the anthropology behind it? Like how did people get here? What kind of challenges adversity they have to face? Like these are colonizing populations that are coming into a brand new world that has never seen, that hasn't seen apes you know, in a long time. There used to be Miocene primates in North and South America. They're gone. You know, those are the kind of things that I want to talk about. Not like, well, these people had the iPhone and then the people with the droid, they came like, like it's, it's fucking stupid at the end of the day, these arguments and how worked up people get is ridiculous and it gets childish. But I do want to talk about something that does have consequences. And so we're going to talk about like, you know, Pleistocene megafauna extinctions here in a bit and kind of the um, routes that are going in there. So for me, I think people were definitely here earlier than um, what our latest dates of Clovis. So I think people have been here based on some of the sites longer than, you know, 11,300 BCE. Whether they have Clovis points or not, I don't care, but people have been here longer. And the first people probably came through the coastal route based on the earliest sites. And the fact that like, even though the Beringia was open, it might have not been able to support life. So that's, that's my two uh, cents. We're going to uh, be right back. I mean, we're going to, I want to talk to you guys about the uh, Pleistocene megafauna. So stay tuned. Okay. Welcome back to episode 143. We're going to, we're going to finish this off with what happened to the big free animals here in the Americas. And this, you know, we have two prevailing theories. Uh, Pleistocene megafauna extinction. Pleistocene being the fancy word for the ice age. Megafauna is just a fancy word for animals that you can see with the naked eye from a distance. So like work megafauna, elephants are megafauna. Pleistocene megafauna refers to ice age, big ass animals that you can see at a distance. Right. So the Pleistocene epoch, that's epoch is a geological time, is typically defined as the time period that began around 2.6 million years ago and lasted until about 11,700 years ago. So like our human species, we're basically ice age animals through the course of our history. It's not until this last couple of years have we come out of the ice age and we're fucking up the planet. According, um, the most recent ice age occurred then as, glac- as glaciers covered huge parts of the planet Earth. The term megafauna is especially associated with the Pleistocene megafauna. The land animals often larger than their extant counterparts, which are considered ar- archetypical of the last stone age, such as mammoths, the majority of which in northern Eurasia, the Americas, and Australia have become extinct within the last 40,000 years. So it's just some examples. This is a list of animals that went extinct around the transition of the Pleistocene to the Holocene. And we live in the Holocene now. We've lost mammoths, mastodons. Mastodons are mammoth-like. They're shorter, smaller ears, also furry. Giant ground sloths, cave bears, short-faced bear, cave lions, dire wolves, bison and tiguous, camels, horses. Now, I don't know about bison and tiguous on that one, but or technically camels. Like it, it's, it's a whole thing because some of these animals just you know, became a new species where they want to call it like evolution or whatever. They, they're, they're different now, right? So like we still have horses. We still have bison. They're just not the same. 
Right. So this idea of what happened to the megafauna is just as old as this the, the fucking pre-Clovis Clovis debate. And it's this huge debate across the globe. So if we, we ignore the pre-Clovis Clovis debate, the Americas humans right here between 16,000 and 11,000 years ago. The Pleistocene ends around 10,000 years ago. Now, if you're a Clovis person, right, like Clovis was here first, right before the Pleistocene ends, and then roughly at the same time at 10,000 years ago, the megafauna went extinct in the Americas. Like, if humans get here in 11,000 years ago, you know, with Clovis, and then all of a sudden all the furry animals go away. This is what we call the Blitzkrieg hypothesis or the fucking overkill hypothesis. They're like, oh, look at this. All the animals are gone. People just showed up. And they went fucking murder, murder hoboing their way across North and South America, like just killing everything. That's what overkill is. It's this idea that people came in and just overhunted the shit out of 30 different species of giant ass animals. Not to mention all the animals that didn't go extinct. Right. You can. I'm, this is my bias because I find this idea just fucking stupid. And it drives me up the wall when we talk about it, like people that believe in overkill, because it's a couple things here. Even if Clovis was first, how many people first colonized? It wasn't tens of thousands of people that came here in droves. That's insane. There are probably a couple hundred, a couple thousand across North and South America, half the fucking globe. We're talking about a couple groups of, of small hunting and gathering groups of a couple dozen across the landscape going on a rampage and just killing everything in sight. No, that's insane. I don't buy that for a minute because it also, and we're going to get into this a little bit more. And the reason why I don't buy that, like think of today, it's really these past like hundred years that we've seen global mass extinctions caused by humans. The amount of people, technology and time it takes to drive species into extinction. And a lot of the species we're wiping off as a species, like as humans today, isn't even caused by hunting. It's like all the pollution that we're doing. So you're telling me 10,000 years ago, a, a couple hundred, a couple thousand people that come into the Americas just decided to wipe out or overhunt the largest and most dangerous mammals. No. And the reason why, and this is gets tied into like Clovis is a big game hunting. The oh, fuck, Jesus Christ, like it's just getting me all worked up. You can look at mammoths as like calorie banks. If you kill one mammoth, then like, oh, look at all this. But they're super dangerous. Like even hunting elephants and megafauna in Africa is still dangerous. Or you could hunt deer or you could do rabbits or like there's a bunch of other sources of protein that are less dangerous to your small group of people that you need. Right? Like we're not going to find bunny kills because of the, like the way the archeological record works. Like if, so there was like a, a bunny trap, rabbit bones are just so small and so ephemeral that the process of time wiped them away. And this is kind of like overkill Clovis first, gets tied in tied in together because these these kind of come as a package right overkill works if clovis is first and there's you have 800 years of people coming in wiping out the megafauna dude the end of the pleistocene into the holocene is such a major climactic event the driver behind it is is the changing climate fundamentally and this idea well it could be both it's like well does that does every predatory species involved contributing to the downfall of these megafauna? Are they also responsible? Like it's it's kind of this ridiculous notion of the idea that people migrating into the North and South America are just like overhunting the shit out of these animals that are highly dangerous, highly hard to kill. Like, and this is also ignoring you guys know our stance. Me, David Connor participate in these things. Like, look at the episodes of Doctor Pettigrew. You could kill mammoths with atlatls tipped with Clovis points. Like that's fundamentally true. And Devin Pettigrew has a paper coming out soon that with the research that we've done with Donnie, myself, Connor, and others that fundamentally proves it. Like taking on Aaron et al's piece. So just ignore that. People definitely hunted these things. We have like over two dozen mammoth and mastodon kills. I'm not arguing with that. I'm arguing with the concept of overkill itself. And which goes into, you know, Clovis people are specialized big game hunters. And this is what I want to talk about sampling bias. And it's it's so prevalent in the arch- in archaeology today. Dent, Folsom, Blackwater Draw, these early sites, you find them by finding big bones first and then the points. There is a sampling bias towards finding fossilized 
or bone like of kill sites because that's how you that's how you're able to find them i would love to know the ratio of how many times archaeologists have gone out to a exposed mammoth remains bison remains to look for points and not finding them right we don't talk about that we don't talk about the failures in archaeology what we do know is you're more likely to find a point if you can find big game animals that being said we have over two dozen clovis aged caches and what a cache is are these amazing beautiful stone tool point basically drop boxes they would put these in like hide, not bundles, but like hide wrappings and hide them. So when people can come back, like you can look at an amazing one, the Mahaffey Cache in Boulder, Colorado. The Fen Cache is super is is super famous as well. There are also these amazing caches. So we, we have over two dozen mammoth and mastodon, big game animal kill sites, butchering sites that are found intentionally, right? People, archaeologists are going out to look for big kills and then finding the points. All the caches are found by fucking accident because they were hidden in time. Like they are purposely hidden by people that, that place them. And so when they come back around, if they come back around, they have a readily available stone tool assemblage ready for them to go. Mahaffey Cash was found because Mahaffey, the last name of the landowner, was doing landscaping in his garden in Boulder, Colorado, and they came across it. And most of the caches are found by accident. They've accidentally found purposely hidden resources, whereas big game kills, archaeologists are going out finding them. Once again, what, what's the percentage of archaeologists going out to look for uh, points associated with big game? That happened at Wyoming when I was there. They found a there was there was this huge fucking hubbub because they found an eroding mammoth coming out of somewhere in like January or February of middle Wyoming. And they rounded the archaeologists up to go excavate this fucking mammoth. And of course, it wasn't there was no there was no Clovis associated. There was no points associated with it. So it was paleontological. And they wanted nothing to do with it. I want to know how many more cases are there like that where people are, are where archaeologists are brought to a site that it's either paleontological or archaeological. They don't know yet. They excavate it, realize there's no points and they just leave it. I want to know that percentage. And this is called sampling bias, right? Because we know that there's a likelihood you can find points associated with these things. And because archaeologists are, are going out to excavate big Pleistocene animal remains, they're having in their head, well, they must be big game hunters because this is where we find them. It's like, no, it's just easier to find. It's easier to find a giant mammoth skeleton than it is to find a projectile point that is like the length of your hand it across the the continent of North continents of North and South America. You guys understand what I'm talking about. This like goes into, there's an amazing example of sampling bias or survivorship bias is what it's called. What's more likely to survive in world war two, eighth army air Corps was losing bombers left and right bombing Germany. They had, and they were trying to figure out a way to make like, they were losing like a quarter of bombers every run. It was an obscene casualty rate. The planes that come back, the army air Corps generals like, well, we need to armor, we, need, we can't armor the entire plane or else it's not take off. So we need to identify where on the plane we need to up armor it. And so they were looking originally at, they look at the bombers, they looked at where all the bullet holes were, and they're like, well, we need to armor those areas because those are where the bullet holes are, right? But there was like substantial gaps in where you could see bullet holes on the returning planes. One was, it was uh, the two points in between the wings between the engines also in the tail of the fuselage you'd see these these large number of bullet holes like in the main cabin behind um the pilots um parts of the tail and then tips of the wings so like well we need to armor those places but the one of the scientists that was working on this problem he was a statistician that was employed by the army air corps was like no no this is survivorship bias you see the areas that well, like all the planes that we're seeing that are coming back they they've they made it back and they got shot in these places. But look, all the planes that came back haven't don't have bullet holes anywhere in these areas on the plane. There's these really these two points in the wings, this point in the in the fuselage between the tail and the main fuselage. That's where we need to armor it because the planes that are getting shot down, that's where the bullet holes are that's knocking them out of the sky, right? You guys get what I'm saying? Like he he had to be like, wait, wait, wait. It's the it's the it's the inverse. The planes that are coming back with these bullet holes, they're fine. We need to armor the places where we don't see bullet holes because those are the planes that aren't coming back. And he was right. He armored the areas on the planes that didn't have bullet holes by the surviving planes, and then survivability of the bombers went up because they they realized they needed to armor the areas on the planes that uh, came back without bullet holes. Area. Like you guys get what I'm saying, right? And this is the same thing with archaeology that for a long time, paleoarchaeologists are, they're driven to go find big game sites because like that's where you can find points because that's the easiest place. Like it's, it's e much easier to find a bison kill or a mammoth kill than it is to find a, a Clovis age cache. 
So there's this survivorship or sampling bias in paleontic archaeology that drives people to, to look for the butchering sites, to look for the kill sites, because that's where you're more likely to, that's where you, you can find points. You don't find the campsites. They're super hard to find. And additionally, like it's going to be super hard to find the remains of, of smaller animals like rabbits, birds, deer, you know, things with much less dense bones that over 10,000 years get absolutely degraded in time. It's easy to find giant elephant bones and they last a long time, right? Or like the bison drives. Like, do you know how many bison were driven off of cliffs or just murdered en masse? And even in the archaic, early Holocene. You know, but they're not the ones, you know, they still survive. So really by this point of this rant, and this is a rant, like the other two were more of a lecture, but this is just kind of like how bonkers some of these ideas like overkill is, especially how it's tied in with, with Clovis first. And if people were here longer than, you know, 11,000 years ago with some of these Clovis components, like that go up to like 16,000 years ago, then people were living in harmony not necessarily in harmony, but they, they have like 5,000 years of living with Pleistocene megafauna and didn't drive them to extinction, right? So pre-Clovis generally like threatens not just Clovis first, but also overkill hypothesis. They're linked. You'll find many Clovis archaeologists, Clovis first archaeologists. They're also supportive of, of Clovis being big, specialized big game hunters, as well as overkill. Those are really tightly woven things. And pre-Clovis threatens that and that's probably why the debate is also so fucking heated is because this idea of how old people are whether it's clovis pre-clovis if it is and generally people are here longer than what we consider clovis first then it, it falls apart it, it, the concepts and theories holding blitzkrieg the blitzkrieg hypothesis and specialized big game hunters that falls apart too so that's that's the background behind these things, that these things are interwoven, especially when it comes to the, you know, the Clovis first mafia. They're also the overkill mafia. They're also the big game hunter mafia. And they'll often point. There are these amazing structures that are in Ukraine and Russia along the Volga and Dnieper River where people built houses out of mammoths. And like, well, we know then they're, they'll point to those people and be like, well, they were specialized. Like we know those were big game hunters because they made their fucking houses out of bones. Turns out the bones that used to create those structures, this was like a recent report these past couple of years, those people that were using those structures were looting <laughs> mammoth graveyards. So if you guys have all seen Lion King, right? There's the elephant graveyard. Elephants do that. They have graveyards where they go and put the bones of their dead on in like these massive elephant graveyards. Mammoths did that too, apparently, and especially in central Eurasia. And these ancestral Ukrainians or Eastern Europeans were going to these mammoth graveyards and pulling bones out and making their houses out of the dead relatives of these elephants. They weren't hunting them. Some were. I, I will say that. There, there definitely some have butchering marks. Now, whether they were hunted or scavenged, who the hell knows? But this idea that Clovis people were, were specialized big game hunters, like it's, it's romantic. It's romanticized. We don't know if they're hunting other things. And they're more than likely like hunting elephants is fucking dangerous. It's much easier to hunt other things and get food sources from others. So like there's this bias in, in paleoneuroarchaeology towards, well, they must have been killing big game. It's like, well, yeah, of course you think that because you're going out and, and specifically looking at kill site or at you're looking for mammoth bones and, and for this. Now, granted, there are a bunch of sites that are procurement sites, right? That's another thing. Like we know we're more than likely to find like powers, powers to ochre mine and some of these places where people are mining rocks throughout time. Well, yeah, they have highly stratified components, not just Clovis and today because like that's where you go to find lithic material for your rocks. Like, yeah, we know that. I mean, that's that's a really good. Well, people need rocks. People need to make stone tools. Where are they going to find the stone from? Another example of sampling bias, but it's kind of right, like. Rocks just don't appear out of nowhere. We know like, okay, people are coming to these outcroppings through time. A lot of those sites, highly stratified. They're amazing because people throughout tens of thousands, 10,000 years are going back to the same place to get stone because everyone knows where the stone's from. But, you know, once again, over overkill, I think is just silly for a couple reasons, right? How many people does it take to do it? How many people actually arrived here to do that? The amount of animals like tens of thousands of animals people would have had a murder within 800 years is fucking insane second people are probably here longer than clovis what we accept is clovis so people didn't just show up and murder everything it wasn't like you know here's this invasive species killing everything and the mammoths didn't know how to react it's like no the people have been here longer they're probably not intensively hunting these animals they're fucking dangerous 
it's the climate. It's the change in climate. The Holocene changes. Like bison becomes smaller and it becomes the world of bison very quickly. Bison love the prairie. That's when we start seeing the beginning of the prairie maximum. Mammoths, not so much. The main factor is climate. Humans aren't helping, but neither are the short-nosed bears. Like neither, no predators ever help a herbivore during a time of a herbivore's crisis. Like it's not just humans. There were other predators on the landscape. It wasn't like it was fucking the Garden of Eden here. Like there was still predators. You know what I mean? It's, so it's just kind of silly. The idea to me of Clovis first and that people were people that had Clovis points were specialized big game hunters. Uh, like what? No. Doubtful. People are way more varied than that. So that's my rant. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I really do find people in the Americas, these colonization theories, like overkill, like what happened to the megaphone, fun to talk about. This is one of my favorite lectures. I hope you guys have some got something out of this. I enjoyed speaking to you guys. Let me know. Like, please email us if you if you liked this format. I'd be more than happy to kind of do these kind of podcasts in the future where I can just like lecture to the audience about what I think. I'm going to put some links down below, um, some things that you guys can read. And yeah, so please be sure to rate and review the podcast. I, of course, if given the chance again, would choose to live life in ruins. And until next time, everybody, we'll catch you again on the Life in Ruins podcast. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.